among the bags of mail that arrived daily at the instant room was a cassette tape. On it was a personal message for George Oldfield. I reckon your boys are letting you down, George. They can't be much good, can they? The voice had an unmistakably Geordie accent. It changed the whole focus of the investigation. Thirty years later, police finally came face to face with the man behind the voice. Oh, it's eerie, late, wasn't it? It is, isn't it? Must have been mad. Why do you say that? I feel crap. Why do you feel crap? Wait for putting the pockets off. Hey, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Crime Analysts, The Intelligence Cell, and the final episode of The Forgotten Victims. Yes, indeed, this is the final episode of the series. I had no idea that this deep dive and reinvestigation would uncover what I have or result in so many episodes. It's been organic, and as I said, I've kept true to the process which isn't always easy, particularly with a podcast reinvestigation. And what you've heard is what I've discovered as the reinvestigation has unfolded. I said right at the start with crime analysts that the devil is in the detail with my work. And yes, there's still a lot more that I could say, but for now, this will be the final episode. I'm still reeling from episode 32 and everything else that I've uncovered. And I have to say, this case makes much more sense now, and not in a good way. As I said at the start, this is perhaps one of the most misunderstood crimes of our time, and I stand by that. Albeit perhaps now I've shed some light into the darkest corners of what PS did, and also on the police investigation. And there have been so many truly mind-blowing discoveries along the way. There was a shortage of detectives and good experienced detectives at a senior level, which came home to roost in this case, but also in many others, sadly. There was also a lot of machismo, misogyny, and a lot of, in inverted commas, togetherness, and seemingly, and sadly, very little learning, particularly in the context of the fact that they should have learned from the Black Panther case prior to this. Now, as I previously outlined... The failures of this investigation followed a previous major failure in the investigation into the murders of three sub-postmasters and their heiress, Leslie Whittle, which involved Lancashire, Shropshire, North Yorkshire, West Mercia, West Midlands and the Metropolitan Police Forces. Now, this was largely due to rivalry between some of the forces involved, the personalities and the politics with a small p, and also a failure to manage the media properly. Sir Lawrence Byford was concerned that the same failures had occurred in this investigation and was determined that in the wider interests of the police service, this issue had to be addressed. He wrote in his report, and I quote, Regretfully, some of these lessons were previously identified at the conclusion of the Black Panther case in 1975, but in light of the R case, quite clearly the police service has not learned from them, particularly those relating to the management and control of a multi-force murder investigation. And I concur. And sadly, four decades later, I'm still concerned that the lessons haven't been learned. 
from what I can tell, and of course it's my interpretation and opinion, there still seems to be an awful lot of, in inverted commas, togetherness in the arse covering department. Safety in numbers and all of that. Oh, did I say that out loud? And it really concerns me that the police would say, the day we have him sitting across the table, we'll know it's him. Because they didn't. In fact, they had more than 17 opportunities, and 10 of those opportunities, he was sat right in front of them, and they still didn't know. And worryingly, I'll share with you that these sorts of things are said present day. And let's not forget they ignored the advice of New Scotland Yard and the FBI, and the incident room were awash with information, and they had to have the floor of the incident room reinforced because of it. And I have to say they contributed greatly to the problem. Well, more specifically, Chief Constable Gregory did. There was no infrastructure to support his national media campaign that he was advised against running. Staff were being drafted in and not properly briefed. Staff at one end of the incident room had no idea what staff at the other end of the incident room were doing. And the basics just weren't being done. And it's not about them even being done well. It's just that the basics were not being done at all. In fact, Sergeant Megan Winterburn, who you've heard from before, said that cards relating to the same person were not stapled together when they were filed and that new recruits to the investigation, including young cadets just out of school and uniformed officers, had no training in indexing the information. She actually said, and I quote, the sick, the lame and the lazy were drafted in and she was incensed by their lack of commitment. Morale was on the floor, and unfortunately this is all on them. Much of it was self-made. So much of the focus of the investigation was on the letters and the tape, and that's a major leadership failure. And even regarding that prioritised line of inquiry, Chief Constable Gregory, Assistant Chief Constable Oldfield, and Detective Superintendent Holland missed another BGO, or blinding glimpse of the obvious, because after the man with the Geordie accent called to say that the tape and the letters were a hoax, the letter writer was never heard from again. Well, that's instructive too. The fact he never wrote again would lead me to believe that the man who called to say it was a hoax was most likely telling the truth. And PC Keith Mount certainly thought so. Remember, he took the call and he had been listening to him playing the tape over and over and over again to see if anyone recognised the voice. And so he would know best, right? Listen to your staff. They're there to do a job. Support them. Don't just ignore them. It's key learning as well from this case. You might also recall that Detective Chief Inspector David Zacherson never thought the voice on the tape was the killer. He compared the language used in the letters and the tape to the language used in the Whitechapel murders back in 1888 and opined that it was very similar, referencing the leather apron, for example, as it was so old-fashioned. And let's not forget that the letter writer even signed off as Jack for crying out loud, which was a big red flag. And remember Tracy Brown, having spoke to him for 30 minutes, she said that it wasn't him, and so did Olive Smelt. And so to the letter writer and the voice on the tape. Well, some 27 years later, a new homicide team in West Yorkshire Police reopened the investigation into the identity of the writer. 
Well, firstly, they were surprised to actually find some of the exhibits still existed and were lying around in the forensic science laboratory. And they found three tiny samples from the envelopes. Now, the samples were from the gum seal of the envelopes and the new homicide and major inquiry team requested that the samples were tested for DNA. Now, the techniques at that time meant that they would only have one shot at it as the envelope flat would be destroyed by the testing. And so there was some apprehension at the time and they weren't sure whether it was going to pay off, but they took the risk and it did pay off. They got a sample. And the sample was then sent to the National DNA Database in the UK, holding the names of convicted criminals from 2001 onwards. And it hit with a man called John Samuel Humble, whose DNA was taken by Northumbria Police. And so the mystery of who the letter writer and the voice on the tape was finally solved. Well, listen to this. Eight years in jail for the man who hopes the police in the hunt for... It would be many more years before a clever DNA analysis located the man who'd led the investigation so disastrously astray. The voice on the tape, Wearside Jack. And this is the moment when John Humble, in the blue sweatshirt, proved he was the man who sent the hoax tape. Would you read that for us, please, John? I'm Jack. I say you are still having no look. John Humble had been arrested in October 2005 by a team of West Yorkshire detectives. Five months later, a judge at Leeds Crown Court sentenced him to eight years in prison for perverting the course of justice. Why on earth did this man from Sunderland do it? Well, I can tell you in police interviews what he said. He told them he did it because he was unemployed, he was bored, and he had nothing else to do. Well, David Sacrison, that was um, a report referring, of course, to John Humble himself. It was DNA was suddenly available, wasn't it, um, many years after the event? Yes, I was extremely relieved when I heard that Humble had been arrested because I knew that in 1987 an inquiry had been launched uh, on the basis that the hoaxer could have been a police officer. In other words, the only person capable of perpetrating this hoax had to have inside knowledge. I received a telephone call from an officer who introduced himself and it became apparent that it was being tape recorded and I put the phone down. And I remember turning round to my wife and saying, if, if they never catch this guy, uh, we know some of the crazy conspiracy theories that abound, they'll have me... Uh, as being the letter writer. So when Humble was arrested, I breathed a sigh of relief. Clever DNA analysis, and yes, John Humble being finally arrested, and good that he was sentenced to eight years in prison for perverting the course of justice. This was a very serious crime. What he did took the investigation completely off course and P.S. even said that it emboldened him further. And I bet it did. But I have to say that I'm deeply troubled by what David Zacherson shared there. That he was worried that he may have even been framed for it. Jesus. I mean, that tells you everything about the culture at the time, doesn't it? Now, interestingly, you heard there in the report that Humble had said he did it because he was unemployed, bored, and had nothing else to do. He then later changed his story and said that he was trying to help the police. Well, I don't believe him. 
Neither of those reasons makes sense in terms of his behaviour. And remember, be careful around questions and language used. For example, what drove him to do it? Well, firstly, nothing drove Humble to do it. And it certainly wasn't being unemployed or being bored or having nothing else to do. Humble deliberately inserted himself into a high-profile investigation, an investigation that he had no business getting involved with. Now, that's instructive as a first point. Secondly, you don't write letters or send a tape like those, letters and a tape that are completely devoid of compassion or empathy to the women to try and help the police. And remember, the tape was sinister in nature. He made it deliberately so. Well, in my opinion, you do that to mislead, to create confusion, to distract and to derail, to say, look at me. And he wanted the attention. Let's remember the context of what was going on at the time. This case was on TV and in the media on repeat loop. It was also what most people were talking about. People were terrified. There was a culture of fear. And Humble knew that. He also saw, just like everyone else did, that the police were focusing and prioritising the letters and the tape. And his behaviour to me is revealing. Although he saw the investigation going in completely the wrong direction, he took this proactive and intentional action. And it's clear to me that he didn't want to be caught. He wanted to be seen as someone, someone more than the pathetic woman and police-hating excuse of a human being that he was. Now, perhaps you're thinking that that's an overreach. Why do I believe him to be women-hating? Well, the simple point of fact about his behaviour tells me that he really didn't care that women were being hurt and killed. His actions betrayed him. He sought to intentionally manipulate the police, to toy with them, and his desire to outsmart them was the priority, rather than stopping a violent, dangerous man from harming more women. And I believe that his behaviour was motivated by payback, a revenge of sorts towards the police, as well as towards women. And given his actions and behaviour, he would most likely have a history of domestic abuse and be violent and abusive to women. In other words, I believe he would think that they deserved it, and he knew fully well his actions would, in essence, protect the real killer. Humble carefully researched the case and constructed both the letters and the tape. He wanted to be authentic. He made the tape sinister, as I said, and he even used a song at the end. This all would have taken time, commitment and resource. He had to invest in it. And he did. Humble intentionally and deliberately wiped his fingerprints off the tapes and therefore he took some forensic countermeasures. He didn't want to be caught. However, he wasn't to know how DNA analysis and techniques would later progress and identify him in the future. Furthermore, when he was eventually interviewed by the police, he initially denied it was him. In fact, he wouldn't even say a word. He just shook his head. However, after a night in the police cell, he broke his silence. Well, the police knew it was him. The science told the story. And Humble's DNA was originally taken for a drunken disorderly offence. But what I've also now learned is that he was in fact known for violence and for having a hatred of the police dating back to 1975 when he was arrested and convicted for assaulting a police officer. So there's that. I also uncovered that he had a conviction for assaulting his wife. 
Well, that comes as no surprise to me whatsoever. Again, make the links that domestic abuse, domestic violence is serious crime. Remember, my research highlights this. And my basic premise, everyone would do well to remember, is this. If you treat the person you're supposed to care and love the most, what are you prepared to do to others that you don't really care about? This is overlooked time and time again, and it really shouldn't be. It's a huge red flag. Just think about that. It really is common sense. But more importantly, like I said, my research and analysis tells us this. So good on former Detective Chief Superintendent Chris Gregg, who was in charge of the Homicide and Major Inquiry team, who years later took a decision to reopen the case. And quite right too. And thank goodness a sample was found from the original investigation. So that's another lesson. Keep exhibits from cold cases. We never know what new advances will be made in the future. So perhaps now your next question is, so how was Humble missed in the original investigation? Well, Humble said police were going hard in Castletown and he was worried for a period of time. Police even knocked on his neighbour's door, but they never knocked on his. This again shows how important it is to do the basics well. The other lesson, clear the ground from under your feet. And yes, Humble did call the police and he did tell them that it was a hoax. But importantly, he didn't give them his name, nor did he take any responsibility for what he did. And this again further underlines my point that Humble did not want to be caught. He could have done the right thing, but importantly, he didn't. And so Humble served four of his eight-year sentence, and he died in 2019. And so Humble distracted the police. And despite the fact he was interviewed by them more than 10 times, they still didn't have a clue he was the killer. And of course, that only served to embolden P.S. further. Even P.S. said to Keith Hellowell, they were never going to get me because they actually came face to face with me. They were face to face with the R and then walked away. So that gave me confidence. Yes, all of these things unfortunately gave him confidence and it was clear that the police didn't have a clue. If the officers, D.S. Booth from West Yorkshire Police and D.S. Bell from Greater Manchester Police had properly searched his home on January the 13th, 1980 when they interviewed him, they would have found the boots he was wearing when he killed Emily Jackson and stamped on her thigh. And they had good reason to. He'd even volunteered to D.S. Booth and D.S. Bell that police had already spoken to him before in connection with the sightings of his car. And even though these officers turned up on his doorstep unaware of this fact, P.S. offered it up to them. You see, not cunning at all. Because the other key point was that P.S. had no alibi other than his wife. But the police officers just noted down multiple times that they weren't happy with him and wrote it up for someone else to do the follow-up interview. So this really was not a cunning killer. Every time he must have thought, well, that's it, they finally got me. But there was no join-up, no common sense, no detective work, no grit, no fire in their belly, no real urgency. And I could go on, and I have. Listen to the previous 24 episodes.
And I want to circle back to the question, might PS have attacked men? Now, I answered this in part, and my opinion is yes. If things didn't go his way, I would expect that he could and he would, and most likely did. Just remember the letter he wrote to Sharon Boyle and her colleague that we talked about in an earlier episode. P.S. said that the police had recently questioned him about 60 non-fatal attacks, and he wrote, Yes, I did some bad things, but I just want people to know I did not attack or murder any males. And so here he admits that he, in inverted commas, did some bad things, but he denied ever attacking men. Well, that was obviously important for him to say, and it's instructive. It tells me that he values men more. Well, I know that, and I believe that you know that too. In his mind, women weren't worth anything. But it's also worth mentioning that when P.S. was finally asked about Fred Craven and John Tolmy, there was no incentive to admit either attacks, no incentive whatsoever. Now, you might be wondering, well, why do I say that? Well, let's just put the question back into the context when P.S. was finally asked. When he was finally asked, he was trying to avoid being transferred back to prison. Therefore, in his mind, he needed to continue with the facade and the claim that not only was he on a mission set by God and that the voices made him do it, but that the mission was about clearing the streets of prostitutes, i.e. women, a particular victim type. That was his narrative, and he'd stuck to it for many, many years, and it had served him well. He'd been transferred to Broadmoor because of it, and he could say that he was a patient detained under Section 47 of the 1983 Mental Health Act, and that, therefore, he was devoid of any responsibility. He was a patient and not a criminal. Therefore, why would he admit to killing Fred and attacking John, two men? That would blow everything up that he'd carefully crafted and maintained for so long. And for what? What was the gain? To ease his conscience? What conscience? To finally give answers to the families? Well, he had zero empathy. Remember what he said about the children growing up motherless? He said he did them a favour. And so in his mind, it would make no sense to confess at this point. He didn't want to go back to prison. He was actually doing everything he could to avoid it. The time when these questions should have been put to him was when he first confessed. And remember, ACC Oldfield told Fred Craven's family when they called him that P.S. was singing like a canary when he was first arrested. But when he hung up the phone, no directive was given to question P.S. about the other potentially linked offences. In fact, the opposite directive was given following P.S.'s conviction, and that was to destroy all the exhibits and the offences linked to P.S. Calling all lovers of mystery. Prepare to don your detective hat in June's Journey, a free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. Take a trip in time to the glitzy 20s and play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. The thrill is endless with new chapters added weekly, allowing you to not only enjoy the detective adventure, but also to personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? 
Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hey, lovely. What's your makeup go-to? What do you need to face the day? Now, for me, if I apply my eyeliner, my brilliant eye brightener, mascara and red lipstick, I feel ready to face anything. But I know every now and again, I need to zhuzh up my makeup. And my amazing sponsor, Thrive Cosmetics, has a full line of makeup to refresh your everyday look. With clean, skin-loving ingredients, their foolproof products make it easy for any skill level to apply. Also, Thrive Cosmetics' Bigger Than Beauty mission is amazing. For every product purchased, Thrive Cosmetics donates products and funds to help communities thrive. I love that Thrive Cosmetics supports domestic violence victims, breast cancer survivors, and women who are homeless. Now, if you want to wreck from me, you cannot go wrong with the Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara. Thrive Cosmetics Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara has a unique formula which creates tubes around each eyelash to lengthen them. And they use nourishing ingredients that support longer, stronger, and healthier-looking lashes over time. Plus, it's super easy to remove and slides right off with warm water and doesn't leave smudges. So treat yourself or someone you love and help women thrive together. Refresh your everyday look with Thrive Cosmetics, luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 10% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash crimeanalyst. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash crimeanalyst for 10% off your first order. Talking of motivation and the link to fences, remember the judge at the trial commended DSO Boyle, DCI Boyle and DS Peter Edwards, but at the time, the judge wasn't to know that they didn't include PS's clothing in the exhibits, which would have made it very clear that there was a sexual motive. And in addition, he didn't know either that the team failed to question PS about other possible offences, the golden window of opportunity. And then there's Chief Constable Ronald Gregory, and I want to circle back to him. He was, after all, the senior officer in charge, and he was clearly hands-on in making key decisions regarding this investigation. Well, there's a few things that I want to mention. Firstly, I told you that he wrote the book and his articles for the Mail, and that he wanted to jump on a plane and travel to the US to share his so-called expertise and learning Well, here he is talking post the Bifid report headlines being discussed in Parliament and to the question of whether there was any real learning with this investigation. It is apparent from the report that there were major errors of judgment by the police. Six months later, on the 19th of January 1982, the Home Secretary, William Whitelaw, gave Parliament a summary of Lawrence Bifid's findings. With hindsight, it is now clear that if these errors and inefficiencies had not occurred, Sutcliffe would have been identified as a prime suspect sooner than he was. I still think that Mr Oldfield and other officers did their very best. Chief Constable Ronald Gregory defended his staff. It's so easy to investigate homicide from a position where you know who's done it and look backwards. He defended his staff, and therefore, with that attitude, how is it possible for true learning to happen? It actually takes you nowhere, absolutely nowhere. 
And the victims, their families, the survivors and the victims of the miscarriages of justice deserve more. Well, Gregory stayed in post for two years after P.S.'s conviction, saying that he wanted to remain while the aftermath of the inquiry was, in inverted commas, cleared up. And I want to share with you a couple of lines from his final annual report in 1983. This is what he wrote. The R is a thorn in my career. I wish we could have caught him earlier, but I know the men on the case could not have worked any harder. So more defending of, but here only referencing the men, not the women, and zero humility, empathy or compassion towards the victims, their families and the survivors. Well, that unfortunately seems to be consistent. And interestingly, he makes it all about him and his police colleagues. Well, as I said before, Gregory was previously awarded the Queen's Police Medal in 1971, and he was appointed CBE in 1980, which was when the investigation was ongoing and floundering spectacularly. So that's a peculiar decision. And interestingly, later on, the previous Chief Constable of West Yorkshire, Sir Norman Betterson, before the current Chief Constable, John Robbins, well, he described Gregory as a man respected for his professional commitment and resilience. Good Lord. I mean, just another nod to the boys club here, which really is staggering, isn't it? And again, it just further underlines that there was no real consequence for the senior police officers involved in this catastrophic investigation, if you can even call it an investigation. And I've talked about the human cost of this utter failure of an investigation in terms of women's lives, but there was also the two million hours spent on the manhunt when PS was right under their noses. And then there's the financial cost in terms of the investigation, which was more than £5 million, which back in the day was a lot of money. That doesn't include the trial. And let's not forget the five reviews, because they all cost money. And then there was the £11 million to house PS in Broadmoor, and then prison. And then he burned more than £67,000 of public money on appeals. And then there was the compensation PS received after he was attacked in prison in 1997, and that was thought to be around £200,000. Psychopaths are very, very costly. And what about the victims and the survivors? Well, Richard McCann and Neil Jackson and other families received no such compensation. Neil Jackson, Emily Jackson's son, said he also failed to receive a penny of compensation or any emotional support after his mother Emily was stabbed 52 times by P.S. in 1976 when he was just 17 years old. He said this, After my mum died, I was left in the lurch to fend for myself completely. Well, I just can't stop from wondering how many lives and how much money could have been saved if they'd believed the women far earlier and thoroughly investigated each case and just did the basics well. If they'd just put out the photo fits. And then there's been the false retelling of this story. And year after year, decade after decade, which helps no one, not the families, not the survivors, not the police and not society. And the false forensic narrative and retelling is still pervasive and ongoing present day. However, when P.S. died, there was a shift by West Yorkshire Police. And they initially put out a statement on Friday the 13th of November 2020, and I want to share it with you. It started with, West Yorkshire Police Chief Constable John Robbins has today commented on behalf of the force regarding the death of P.S., 
P.S. was convicted at court in 1981 for the murder of 13 women and the attempted murder of seven other victims in crimes which created a climate of fear across the country. I'm sure the news of his death will bring back a range of mixed emotions and trauma for surviving victims and relatives of those whose lives he cruelly took away. Those who died and were assaulted, as well as those relatives who are still suffering today, are at the forefront of our thoughts and our condolences. The investigation into offences committed by PS was at the time the largest ever conducted by a UK police force and was subject to two exhaustive reviews in the immediate aftermath. The 1981 report by Sir Lawrence Byford and a subsequent review conducted by former West Yorkshire Police Chief Constable Colin Sampson identified the extensive efforts made by the inquiry team as well as what clearly went wrong. Failings and mistakes that were made are fully acknowledged and documented. We can say without doubt that the lessons learned from the PS inquiry have proved formative in shaping the investigation of serious and complex crime within modern-day policing. West Yorkshire Police is committed to ensuring that those harmed by crime are at the heart of what we do. Statement ends. Well, here are my thoughts. The failures were not fully documented or published. In fact, the Home Office still hasn't published the report in full, despite many Freedom of Information requests to do so, including my own. Equally, I take issue with the fact that they say, without doubt, that the lessons have been learned to inform future policing investigations, mainly because most of what I've revealed here is not common knowledge, and it wasn't even common knowledge when I was in the police setting up the very unit in response to the Byford report. And I'm still awaiting my Freedom of Information request from April, and it's now August. And they've given me a new date of August 18th, so I'll know in the coming weeks whether they're finally ready and willing for the true learning to occur some 40 years on. Now, you'll probably recall that I spoke to Richard McCann, Wilma's son, and we talked about the fact that he had requested an apology from West Yorkshire Police. Well, on November the 23rd, 2020, Richard got his apology. And I want to read to you the statement that Chief Constable John Robbins on behalf of West Yorkshire Police put out. So the header was Death of PS, statements from Chief Constable John Robbins on behalf of West Yorkshire Police. On behalf of West Yorkshire Police, I apologise for the additional distress and anxiety caused to all relatives by the language, tone and terminology used by senior officers at the time in relation to PS's victims. Such language and attitudes may have reflected wider societal attitudes of the day, but it was as wrong then as it is now. A huge number of officers worked to identify and bring PS to justice, and it's a shame that their hard work was overshadowed by the language of senior officers used at the time, the effect of which is still felt today by surviving relatives. Thankfully, those attitudes are consigned to history and our approach today is wholly victim-focused, putting them at the centre of everything we do. The well-documented Byford and Sampson reviews fully explored many issues. However, the reports did not fully address the issue of how victims were portrayed and described, which impacted on the families, friends and wider public perception. I offer this heartfelt apology today as a Chief Constable of West Yorkshire Police. Well, what did you make of that? For me, I'm happy that the present Chief Constable of West Yorkshire Police did the right thing. Yes, it's some 39, 40 years later, but he should be applauded for the apology. 
The victims, families and survivors needed that. And in my view, it's always better late than never. It's good that the victims, the survivors and their families are finally centred for the first time in the narrative and that their trauma was acknowledged. Well done, West Yorkshire Police. But, and yes, there is a but, I was surprised to see a comment about the so-called hard work of officers being overshadowed by the language of senior officers at the time. You see, it turns into a non-apology when you start caveating with buts, but the officers worked hard and their work should not be overshadowed. You see, the thing is, it was overshadowed and it wasn't just about a few senior officers using poor language. The failures were monumental and catastrophic and in my opinion, the cover-up is much worse. And let's not forget the miscarriages of justice, which I've uncovered or what Lord Byford wrote in his report, and this is what he said. We feel it highly improbable that the crimes in respect of which PS has been charged and convicted are the only ones attributed to him. This feeling is reinforced by examining the details of a number of assaults on women since 1969, which in some ways clearly fall into the established pattern of PS's overall modus operandi. It is my firm conclusion that between 1969 and 1980, P.S. was probably responsible for many attacks on women, which he has not admitted, not only in West Yorkshire and Manchester, but also in other parts of the country. P.S. was greenlit to kill and attack again and again between 1969 and 1981. And as I wrap this series, my final thoughts are with the women, the victims, the survivors and their families. I feel so upset and distressed due to what they've endured and what they continue to experience and endure. 23 children were left without a mother. They're victims too. And the many mothers and fathers and families who were left heartbroken and never recovered. I want to share with you what Wolf MacDonald, Jane's father, said. He said this, The police came in and said, are you the father of Jane MacDonald? I said, yes. I said, I'll kill her when she comes home because she didn't call me last night. They said, you may not have to. And that's as much as I knew. If she had died of, you know, an illness or accident, but when it happens like it did, a mutilation and everything, I went to identify her and I just collapsed there and then. He's murdered the whole family. By October 1979, Wolf was dead too. He was buried in a grave next to his beloved daughter. His family believe he died of a broken heart. You see, what P.S. did and was allowed to do had wide-reaching consequences for many. Lord Byford concluded that serial killers become serial killers because they're cute enough to avoid police detection early on. But like I said before, most of them are hiding in plain sight. The police missed P.S. over and over again when he was right under their noses. Even P.S. was shocked. It came down to attitude, aptitude, leadership, misogyny, and the misogyny that harms and kills women, as I've said time and time again. You see, most perpetrators in my professional experience are not criminally sophisticated, even if they may be forensically aware to some degree. Serial perpetrators and stalkers are a major problem and sadly very little has changed since P.S. This to me is one of the most misunderstood crimes of our time. I said this right at the start, 
and the moniker and the reports being buried have played a major role in further mythologizing this serial killer and stalker. So what have we learned? Well, we know that perpetrators target multiple women. We know we have to do more to proactively identify serial perpetrators, including stalkers, which is what PS was, and domestic abusers. We need to call out coercive control, stalking, misogyny and sexism. Controlling men start by controlling women at home. And it's worth noting that many of the victims who were killed and those who survived were victims of domestic abuse too. You see, domestic abuse is much more common than most people think. Most abusers are misogynists. Most come from homes where there was a domestic abuser and witnessed their mothers being abused. That's what the evidence and cases tell us. That's the link. We have to see domestic abuse and stalking as serious crime. And we have to think about the impact on the whole family. Hence my campaign to proactively identify, assess and manage serial domestic abusers and stalkers. The abuse impacts the primary victims, primarily the woman, but also the children too, the next generation. Abusers won't stop until we make them stop and hold them accountable for their behaviour. Women have to matter more. Enough is enough. The murders of women in West Yorkshire and Manchester turned a lot of women and men into activists. That's one positive that came out of all of this. And I hope the Forgotten Victim series has motivated you to be an activist, an advocate and an upstander. You can sign the petition in the show notes for serial stalkers and domestic abusers to be proactively identified, assessed and managed by police, prison and probation services in the UK. But this also needs to happen in America and Australia and all over the world. And you can also donate to the memory garden for the women so that the families and the next generation can go there. And I'll put the link in the show notes. And please do your bit and challenge people in the day-to-day -day discussions when they use the Yorkshire R word or the moniker for another serial killer. Challenge misogyny and sexism when you hear it. It really does matter. I'm going to end now where I began this series, with the women's names. Let's remember all the women. They all were somebody. Hashtag her name was... Wilma McCann, Emily Jackson, Irene Richardson, Deborah Schlesinger, Patricia Tina Atkinson, Jane MacDonald, Jean Jordan, Yvonne Pearson, Helen Ricker, Vera Millard, Josephine Whitaker, Barbara Leach, Margaret Wars, Jacqueline Hill, and I'm also including Barbara Ann Young, Elizabeth Paravicini, Carol Wilkinson. And let's remember the brave and courageous women who survived. The unnamed prostitute who was attacked in 1969. The unnamed 19-year-old typist. Gloria Wood. Rosemary Steed. Maureen Hogan the unnamed prostitute who was attacked in Doncaster, Yvonne Myslovich, Anna Rajolsky, Olive Smelt, Tracy Brown, Marcella Claxton, Maureen Long, Marilyn Moore, Anne Rooney, Dr. Apadja Bandara, 
Maureen Lee, and Teresa Sykes, and all the other women who P.S. harmed, who have not been identified or named. Let's remember the women and let's honour them. And thank you for tuning in to The Forgotten Victims. And please remember for yourselves, be curious, ask questions, and always trust your instincts. And here's my final two cents before the episode wraps. The first is a huge thank you to all of you, my lovely listeners and crime analysts, for tuning in every week. The second is an ask. If you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review on whichever platform you listen to me on. It really helps others find me and helps with the ratings. So thank you, thank you. Crime Analyst is written, produced and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Tim Hansen at Half Ogre Studios. Cover art and graphics by Chris Raybottom at Syndicate. And music by Kilrood. credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.